Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. We hope to enrich your life through reaching, serving, giving, and building. As you listen to this teaching, be inspired to fulfill your God-given destiny through the power of His Word. I have titled this message, Jesus, a down-to-earth kind of God. Jesus, a down-to-earth kind of God. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy, Lord. I pray as we uh, open up your scriptures and as we study John chapter one, that you would give us a supernatural grace to see it, to understand it, and Lord, ultimately to live it in a way that we haven't lived it before. Lord, I pray for every person in this room, Lord. I know that uh, your Holy Spirit is is talking to hearts, is talking to minds right now. Uh, And God, I pray that you would use me and you would use your word during this time to speak truth and life to everyone in here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, John, let's give you a little context about who John is. John was Jesus's BFF, okay? He was best friends with Jesus and he was one of his disciples. But when you read in the different gospel accounts, you can see that even amongst the 12 disciples, there were really three disciples that got to hang out with Jesus even more than the 12. And John was one of those. And really John stands out as one of uh, the, the most Uh, beloved best friends of Christ. And so he walked uh, the many years that Jesus walked on this earth. He walked those years with him. He saw the miracles. He saw uh, the, the, the crucifixion. He saw the resurrection of Christ. And then he spent many years in ministry after Jesus leaves in the book of Acts. And so John has great experience. And at the end of his life, He's an old man. We don't know how quite old he was, but he was, he was getting on in years. This would have been uh, sometime close to 85 AD. And so if you think back, he was a young kid in 30 AD. So he was a pretty old guy. He is now the bishop Uh, which is kind of like the overseer of the church of Ephesus. And if you've ever seen the book of Ephesians, that is a letter written by Paul to that church. Now at this time, Paul Paul and Peter had both passed away and John spent the last years of his life uh, as the bishop of Ephesus. And he's writing this gospel. So he's very familiar with all of the Christian literature that is out there. He's very familiar with what people are saying about Jesus. And you can sense that he feels like there's something really important that people have not quite grasped yet about Christ. And so when he writes the book of John, he is very pointed, he is very direct, and he is very repetitive. And he's writing something on purpose. And what he's trying to show everyone is that when he looks back, it's easy to miss, but Jesus was a good prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Jesus was a good teacher, but he was more than a teacher. Jesus was a great healer, but he was more than that. That Jesus was divinity wrapped in humanity. That Jesus was more than just a mere man. And he's writing this letter and he wants the church at large to understand this. That when he looks back, sometimes it's easy to miss things whenever you don't, when you're living them in those moments. But you have to look back and you have to remember and see the significance. 
Have you ever had a moment in your life that you didn't realize how important it was until you looked back years later? This past month, we, uh, we had uh, the Super Bowl, right? With the Falcons and the Patriots. And many people are saying it was the greatest Super Bowl in, in history because of this great comeback. But we all know in South Louisiana, and that's not true. The greatest Super Bowl was Super Bowl 44. And that was played on February 7th, 2010. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right, the crowd's coming alive, Pastor Mike. My preaching's getting better. 2010, February 7th, an important day that stands in history. I'll never forget that day. We had just purchased our first home and I had my loving parents and my family who's sitting right here on the fifth row. Hey, love you guys. They came over and, you know, I just bought my first home, so I didn't have any money. So my dad brought some steaks and he said, hey, we're going to grill some steaks. We had king cake for days. It was an amazing day. And our hopes were high because, you know, Drew Brees was leading the charge and we knew that we were seeing something that was probably only going to happen once in our lifetime. Let's be honest. This was, this was a day you cannot miss this day. Well, I noticed earlier on in the day, my wife started saying things like, oh, I'm not feeling too well or I'm not sick. And, and I'm thinking, okay, well, you're just, you're just gonna have to deal with it, okay? Because this is the most important day in the history of the world, you know, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And the game starts and I look over and my wife is nodding off. And I cannot believe what I'm seeing. This is, this is the most important day in my uh, sports uh, loving life. And she is nodding off. And I'll never forget the very end of the game. If you, if you watch the game, you remember this. Uh, Tracy Porter caught about a 74 yard interception thrown by Peyton Manning and he took it the distance and it sealed the game. It was done at this point. And I am screaming at the top of my lungs. Everyone is jumping up and down and I look over and my wife is dead asleep on the couch. And I think to myself, I've married the wrong person. <laughs> clearly, clearly she doesn't understand me or how important this moment is. And February 7th goes down as an amazing day. And February 8th, she comes to me and she says, hey, remember how I was feeling bad last night? I was like, yeah. She's like, I'm pregnant. <laughs> you see, what I thought was something bad, what I thought was something insignificant, there was so much more going on than I can see. And this is how John is. He is looking back at the life of Christ and he is saying, there is more than meets the eye. Even the history books can't tell you everything that was happening. This was no ordinary life. This was no ordinary person. And when you look at the scope of humanity, you can see that, man, John was right. Jesus changed the world. He changed history. Kind of a side note here. How many of you have a BFF? You have a best friend. What would it take for them to convince you that they are God? Look, I love David Ray, all right? David Ray's in Spain. Hopefully he's watching right now. I love David Ray. He'd have to do a whole lot to convince me he was God. And yet John, at the end of his life, looks back and says, there's no other explanation than that Christ, that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, he was more than a man. He was God. 
And I wanna take one verse, everybody say one verse. I wanna take one verse, I just wanna break it down tonight. It's one of the most famous verses uh, in the book of John. It's in chapter one and it's verse 14. It says this, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In this passage, we see three things. We see the meaning, the mission, and the motive. And that's what I wanna break down. So first, let's talk about the meaning. He said, the word. Everybody say the word. The word became flesh. This is, does this, is this kind of odd to you? Because I remember how odd it was to me when I first read this verse that John is calling Jesus the word. We actually sang a song, I don't know if you caught it. We sang a song earlier tonight and the first words were, you were the word at the beginning. You were the word at the beginning. This is a reference to John chapter one, where John is saying Jesus is the word. Now in English, it makes sense, but we have to actually do a little study to understand what is going on here. He's using a very pointed on purpose Greek word. And that Greek word is the Greek word logos. Logos, L-O-G-O-S. Maybe when you were studying uh, the ancient world in, in, in high school, you heard about the, the pathos and the logos and all these things like this. Well, this is what he's talking about. This word was a very common word. And the word logos, it means reason or meaning. It's where we get our English word logic from. He says, the logos became flesh. Jesus is the logos. Now, the way, I guess the way I can explain this is, have you ever been in a situation where you, you purchased something and it had some assembly required and you open the box and it's in a bunch of pieces and what's the first thing you start doing? You start pulling the pieces out and then you look for the manual. You look for the instruction manual because the instruction manual is a message from the designer of the product on how to assemble this and how to use this particular uh, item. I remember a couple of years ago setting up uh, a bunk bed for my daughters. I set, uh, we actually set up the bunk bed as two twin beds until my oldest daughter turned six. And once she turned six, I went back and turned the twin beds into a bunk bed. And I only realized at that point on step 42 that I completely did step 18 wrong. Do you know the frustration? I had to completely reassemble. I mean, I had to disassemble this thing and I got down to step 18. And how many of you know, that'll test your Christianity. Look, you can be a pastor and be, you know, holy man of God. But I tell you what, in those moments, man, you need the Holy Ghost to come through. And, and I didn't understand the logos. I didn't understand the meaning. I had misunderstood the logos. And the ancient Greeks were consumed with this idea about the logos. They were searching for the meaning of life, the logos of life. And everywhere they went and everywhere they, they, they got together, they would talk about the logos. And their thought was this, if I can understand the logos of all life, this overarching principle, and I can align my life with that logos, then what will happen is the meaning of all life will come into sync with the meaning of my life. And they were looking to align their lives 
to this principle. And so there was constant debate, hundreds of years of literature on this very topic. What is the logos? What is the meaning of life? And how can we line ourselves up with that? And by the time Christ comes into the world in the first century, they had pretty much given up. They had pretty much given up and said, there can't be any meaning. We've, we've had the best and brightest minds of the entire world looking for the meaning of life and we can't figure it out. We can't get it. We don't understand the meaning. And so these groups of people started bursting on the scene and you've heard maybe about them, the Stoics or the Epicureans. And these are people who said, hey, there is no meaning. So let's party. Some of you know friends like that. These are the kind of people that were on Bourbon Street last night. They said, there is no meaning to life. Let's party. And there were others that said, no, no, no. If there's no meaning to life, so we've got to create our own meaning. So we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And John comes up on the scene and says, you've completely missed it. You see, the meaning of life is not a principle. It's a person. He says, it's person and his name is Jesus. He is the meaning of life. And so to every person who doesn't believe or doesn't agree, John's message is this, you will not find meaning anywhere else unless you put your meaning in Christ. But to the Christian, this, should, this, this, this comes off the page to us as a Christian because we look at this and John's question for you and John's question for me is, is Christ the meaning of your life? Is he the reason you breathe? Is he the reason you make any decisions in your life? Is he the reason you get up in the morning? Is he the reason? Or do you have some other logos? Do you have some other meaning? Do you have some other thing going on? You know, for me, I, I find that if I look back at the different seasons of my Christianity, I've either approached Christ one of two ways. One, I made him the meaning of that season. Or two, I've made him just a means to an end. Where I used him and I really, honestly, I treated him like a vending machine. Have you ever been to a vending machine and you put your money in and you, you press on the bag of chips or the candy bar and then it, as it's coming forward, the, all your hope is diminished as it slams into the glass? Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and at that moment, the first thing you have is denial. And you're thinking, oh, there's, oh, there's no way. That, and then what's the next thing that happens? You become very angry, don't you? You look around and you look for the hit, you see if there's any cameras anywhere because you know you're about to get violent on this machine. <laughs> and what do you do? You start pushing it and tilting it and moving it around. And, and if you're desperate enough, you'll get down on the ground and you'll stick your hand in that little bar at the bottom and you'll risk personal injury for that 75 cent Snickers. You know what I'm talking about? I can't tell you how many times in my life I have treated Christ this way, like he was some sort of vending machine. That I'd go to him and I'd say, okay, I did what you wanted me to do. I've been, I've been good on my quiet times. All right, I'm up to date on the Bible app. I'm doing really good whenever it comes. I'm a good giver, man. I've given more this year than I've ever given. I've done all these things. I've served at all these things. And I've come to him and I said, okay, now it's payback time. Now it's time for you to give me what I want. And I've treated him as a means to an end versus the meaning for my life. And what's so scary about this is that you 
don't really know if you're treating him as your meaning or as your means to an end until he gives you an end you don't like. That's the hard part is you think, oh, he's my meaning, he's my meaning. And then all of a sudden he says no to that promotion. All of a sudden he says no to that relationship. All of a sudden he says no to that job. He says no and he says, I have something else for you. And all of a sudden you don't have what you want. And then you start kicking and screaming and you start pushing the machine and you think to yourself, look at all I've done for you. See, John says he can't just be the meaning of all life. He has to be the meaning of your life. And as a Christian, we have to make sure that we are aligning our lives to the logos of the universe, the creator of all things. But not only that, that we realize that it's not a principle, it's a person to have a relationship with. He shows us the meaning. Then he shows us the mission. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know, when you read the first chapter of John, one thing that'll stand out to you is John uses the word light seven different times in the first nine verses. In fact, he uses it 23 times in the entire gospel of John. And this is something uh, that stands out because he uses it more than all the other gospel writers combined. Because John realizes as a human race, we have lost our meaning. When we were in the garden, we understood the meaning of life. But then once we left that garden, we have been searching for that meaning ever since. And we have been living in darkness. And John says, a great light has come into the world. And this light is the light of all people. And he has come to rescue us from our darkness. I'm so thankful for a savior who doesn't sit on the sidelines and watch us in our misery and in our darkness. He stepped off of the sidelines of heaven and he came right into the middle of our suffering. Did you guys hear about this story? Uh, this happened just a few weeks ago. I was actually at Disney World when this happened and uh, I saw it all over the Facebook feeds. There's a local lady, a lady by the name of Vicky, Miss Vicky, uh, Miss Vicky uh, Tillman, and she was driving down on a Sunday morning. She was driving down the road. Did you hear about this? And she saw this police officer who was uh, wrestling with a suspect. And she's driving down the road. And I read this on ABC News. It, and it said this in the ABC News article. She was listening to gospel music. She was praising God. And she's driving down the road and she sees this officer and he's wrestling with the suspect. And, and she, she sees that he desperately needs help. So Ms. Vicky immediately calls 911, but she realizes this situation is escalating quickly. She, this 56-year-old lady, jumps out of her car, runs and jumps on the back of the suspect <laughs> as they're wrestling. And she starts wrestling the suspect and gets all over this dude and he can't fight both her and the police officer. And the next thing you know, uh, the, the suspect has been apprehended. And I thought about this story. And I was like, wow, what bravery, what courage. I'm thinking, I don't think I would have done that. I just started praying. I'm like, God, save, save him. 
do something supernatural, Lord. Don't make me have to do anything. Ms. Look, this is the quote uh, from uh, the advocate that uh, uh, Ms. Vicky said. She said, I could see in his eyes that he needed help. She said, you don't have time to think about it. I did what God needed me to do. And I was like, Ms. Vicky's awesome. <laughs> she was listening to gospel music. And in a moment's notice, she put her life at risk. And I thought, what a picture of the gospel. We don't serve a God who sits on the sidelines. He saw the look in our eyes, the look of pain, the look of destruction, the look of hopelessness. And he came into earth. He had a great mission and he stepped into our pain. He stepped into our hurt. I love the name of this church. You know, it's Healing Place Church, a healing place for a hurting world. When I first started attending it, we had a different name. It was called Trinity. And that was, that was a cool name. And I remember the first time I heard uh, that we had changed the name to Healing Place Church. And I thought that's kind of weird. <laughs> Trinity kind of had a better ring to it. But over the years, I realized something that this was the perfect name for our church because it described our mission. We have a mission. You see, we serve a savior who cannot sit on the sidelines. And so as a church, we can't sit on the sidelines. We have to get involved. When people are hurting, we're there. When people, when there's a flood that comes in, Healing Place Church is there. We have a mission. I love what Pastor Mike says. I don't know that he says it on stage a whole lot, but I've heard him say it a, a thousand times. He says, man, we're, we're less of a church and more of a triage because there are hurting people all over Baton Rouge. And we are called to help those that are hurting, to bring the light of Christ to those people. I think about just in a couple of weeks, we have this awesome thing called car prep. We've been doing car prep as long as I've been here. It's this amazing outreach where we get to help single moms and military wives and widows who can't take care of their own vehicles. They come in on this property and they get their vehicles washed. They get clean. They get, they get themselves. We have a whole pampering section and there, there's all these issues that they come in with their vehicles and then they get, they get taken care of all for free. And I think, man, what a picture of the gospel. We can't sit on the sidelines. We have another thing coming up next month. One of my favorite things that our church does is called the Easter egg extravaganza. <laughs> If you've ever been to this, you already know. I don't even have to describe how amazing this day is. This day is for families, uh, people who have special needs in their families. They come in on this property and this whole place is completely transformed. And hundreds of volunteers are here just serving and loving on them. And it's just such an amazing day. And it's such an amazing picture of the gospel. You see, we don't do these things because we want to earn God's favor. We do these things because we have seen the favor of God. We have seen the mission of Christ. We know that he doesn't sit on the sidelines and as Christians, we can never sit on the sidelines. John 1.14 shows us the meaning and the, mo uh, and the mission, but the last thing he shows us is the motive. It says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, made his dwelling among us. 
This is the greatest mystery of all. I don't understand this. I have I've studied the Bible for a few years. I, I, really, I really don't understand why God desires to be with us. What is it about us that makes him want to be near us? John, you can't see it in the English, but John is using a very specific Greek word and it literally could be translated uh, that the word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. And what he's doing here is he's pointing the reader to the history of the Old Testament. And he's making us think about the, the history of God dwelling with man. You see, in the garden, God dwelt with man in a very unique way. The Bible says that they would walk together in the cool of the day. They, they experienced some kind of supernatural connection. But because of our sin and our disobedience, we forfeited that kind of intimacy. We created a gap between us and God that we could never close. And when you look at the narrative of the entire Bible, it's as simple as this. We created a gap we couldn't close and God has spent human history closing that gap. You see, we dwelt with him in the garden, but then we were out on our own. And then eventually he comes in and he saves his people, the Israelites, and Moses comes on the scene and they build what's called a tabernacle, which was a portable tent that housed the presence of God. And eventually that tabernacle wasn't portable anymore and they built what was called a temple. And the temple was good and the temple was nice and it was great that the presence of God was there, but there was only one temple and there was a whole lot of us. And so there was restricted access. People couldn't just walk into the temple anytime they wanted and experience the presence of God. It wasn't enough, though it was close it wasn't close enough for God. So he sent his son, Jesus. He said, I'm gonna go from a building and I'm gonna go and be a person. And so Christ comes into the world and he embodies the presence of God. He is the new temple and he's walking the earth. And as he's doing this, he starts saying these things to his disciples that they didn't understand. He starts saying, it's better that I leave. It's better that I leave. Because when I leave, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And they're thinking, how could anything be better than this? How could, how could we go from this tabernacle to this temple now to God in the flesh? How could it be better than this? And they won't understand until after Christ rises from the dead and sends the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come and rest in a church service. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside every single believer. Think about that. You can't get closer than that. There's no closer than that. God did everything he could to go from being some God in a tent to be the God that dwells in his people. This doesn't make any sense to me. Why does he want this? We see this great motive. Jesus is the meaning. He had a mission and it was all for what? Because he wanted to be close to you. He wanted to be close to you. I love this quote by a great Puritan preacher, John Owen. He says this, he says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father the greatest unkindness is to not believe that he loves you. 
The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness is not to believe that he loves you. You see, the picture of the gospel is not that we were doing good and then God just interrupted us. We were doing bad. We had lost our meaning. We had lost the logos. We had lost the light. And we were living in darkness and we were trying to find meaning in so many different things. And God couldn't stand on the sidelines. He got involved. He stepped out of heaven and he became flesh. And the only reason was because he loved you. Because he wanted to be close to you. Because he wanted to dwell in you. You ever know those people that have no sense of personal space? I'm talking about the close talkers. They always up in your grill. And you're like, I need like, I need, I need, I need a little space here. God hates that space. He doesn't want there to be any space between you and him. You know, Paul sums it up this way in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. It's a lot of scripture, but I want you to just focus on it. I want you to think about what it says. He says, in your relationships with with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing set of words Paul gives us. You see, if downgrading from being God to being man wasn't a downgrade enough, he downgraded himself even more He downgraded himself to death, but not any kind of death, not, oh, an aneurysm or a car crash or anything like that. The worst possible death that a human being could go through. I don't have time to explain the process of crucifixion, but I can tell you this, there's no worse way to die. The Romans spent hundreds of years perfecting this on how to make a person suffer the longest. Have you ever heard the word excruciating? That word comes from crucifixion because of how bad it is. All for what? Because he wanted to be close to you. I can't fathom that kind of love. I can't understand that kind of love. But John says, it's here. It's here. Thank you for listening. For more information about Healing Place Church, go to healingplacechurch.org.
or give us a call at 225-753-2273.